you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. The verses we'll be considering this morning are verses 8 and 9, but I want to read those verses in their context, so we'll read verses 6 through 9 together. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. We're coming to the end of our series in this letter. God willing, this will be the second to last message in this book. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter writes this letter from Rome to the saints in Asia Minor. We believe in roughly the early 60s A.D., By that time, roughly 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it is possible that some of these Christians had read at least one or two, maybe even three, of the written gospel accounts. Uh, No doubt all of them, though, would have at least heard the gospel accounts, even if they had not had access to a particular written manuscript. But they would have been familiar, I think, what's contained in the gospel accounts. Therefore, it's likely that most, if not all, of these Christians would be familiar with Peter's personal history as recorded in the Gospels. The Apostle Peter, who was that disciple of the Lord, who we believe is perhaps behind the writing of the Gospel of Mark, who factors so prominently in the Gospel accounts, they would have been familiar, very likely, with his story. And we've already seen in this series, those of you who have been with us for these weeks, uh, that at a number of points, a knowledge of Peter's personal history and narrative Uh, does inform and illuminate our reading of this letter. I think particularly of the many parallels we've seen between the epistle of 1 Peter and the Sermon on the Mount. Peter would have been there, that famous sermon recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. He would have been there receiving that teaching from the Lord, and much of that teaching is in some ways reproduced, Peter's own tone of voice by his own hand in this letter. Well, our text this morning here in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9 is no different. I think a knowledge of Peter's personal history will enrich our consideration of this passage. There is no doubt that Peter and many of his readers would have remembered the the very well-known account of Peter's denial of the Lord and how the Lord himself actually foretold that this would happen and how the Lord himself highlighted the activity of Satan in that whole dark episode from Peter's life. In Luke's rendering of that event, he writes this, Luke 22, verses 31 through 34. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Well, Satan did attack Peter, and Jesus did pray for Peter, 
And Peter's faith did not ultimately fail, but he did fall, and he did deny the Lord. But true to the Lord's word, Peter turned, he repented, and he was restored. And the Lord commissioned him again, telling him to strengthen his brothers. The book of Acts, in many ways, if you read the first several chapters of the book of Acts, we have a a chronicling of the early history of Peter's ministry among the saints in Jerusalem. And it is indeed in that context that he did strengthen his brothers and fulfilled what the Lord has said that he would do. But also here in our text, we have another instance of Peter drawing on that bitter experience, that conflict with Satan where he fell prey to Satan's attacks. And we have an account of what he learned through that experience. And he, having turned and having followed Christ again and having walked with him now for over 30 years, he writes to these saints 30 years on from that dark event, and he says this, be sober-minded, verse 8, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering being experienced by your brotherhood is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So I want us to hear from one perhaps better acquainted with satanic opposition and the reality of satanic attack, perhaps better acquainted with this than anyone else, and what he has to say to saints like him who are subject to satanic opposition. So we'll open up these two verses, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, under three headings. We'll consider, first of all, the reality of satanic opposition. Uh, Secondly, we'll consider the call to Christian alertness and resistance. And thirdly and finally, we'll look at an encouragement for the fight. The reality of satanic opposition the call to Christian alertness and resistance, and thirdly, an encouragement for the fight. Consider with me first the reality of satanic opposition. Verse 8, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As Peter draws to the end of this letter, and as he reminds his readers of some of the challenges they face, he concludes by highlighting the activity of the devil. And up until now, if you've been with us in this series, if you're familiar with the letter, you know that Peter has spoken to us about the reality of remaining sin and the reality of temptation. You know that Peter has talked to us about the hostility of the world and how we are elect exiles passing through this hostile world that is not our home. And he certainly talked about the reality of suffering as well. But now here as he draws to the end, And he wants to call particular matters to the minds of these saints. He highlights here for the first time, and actually the only time in this letter, the activity of Satan. It's as though he's saying, in all these other things, your temptations that you experience day in and day out, the reality of inward sin that you're seeking to mortify and to fight, the reality that you live in a hostile world with people who wish to malign you and slander you and persecute you, and all these things recognize Satan has designs in this. Satan has a will in this. Satan is at work in these circumstances and in these things, and he has certain outcomes that he is working toward. There are certain things he wants to bring about through all of these things. This warning from Peter, given its significant position in the letter, being at the conclusion, as well as the stark terms with which Peter presents this satanic threat, should accentuate for all of us the seriousness of this reality in Peter's mind. 
There are a couple of things we should note here about what Peter says there about Satan in verse 8. First of all, we should state the obvious. To Peter, this would be true of the other apostles and certainly to the Lord himself, the devil is not a mythical or symbolic creature, but a fully real and animate being. He possesses a will. He has intentions and designs. He is permitted some measure of power to actually harm people, and he wants to harm people, especially Christians. The devil in other places in Scripture is said to be a liar and a murderer. He's described elsewhere as the tempter. He's described as the accuser of the brethren. He is in a number of passages described as the chief adversary of the Lord's people. The Bible's view of the reality of Satan and satanic opposition could not be more frank and more plain. Brothers and sisters, the devil is real, he is ruthless, and he wants to destroy the faith of God's people. In my limited experience, I have known some Christians, a few, who maybe have um, an inordinate sort of preoccupation with the activity of Satan and demonic activity, but in my limited experience, that's only a very few. In my experience, actually, I feel that Christians in America at least err on the other end of the spectrum. I think Christians generally are not as aware as they ought to be. They don't think enough about the reality of Satan and of demonic activity, and it is precisely, I think, this lack of awareness that can make us so vulnerable to Satan's attacks. For some of us, the whole ideal, idea of a devil perhaps seems quaint or passe. To speak of a devil and of Satan prowling around like a roaring lion seems more like fantasy to us. After all, we've had the Enlightenment. We live in a world of gears and levers and gadgets and iPhones. Am I really supposed to think about the activity of a devil, of someone named Satan? You may be familiar, some of you, with C.S. Lewis. He wrote a, a, a very helpful, popular-level book called The Screwtape Letters. And in that book, it's, it's fiction. It's not C.S. Lewis trying to do biblical exegesis or something like that. But in that book, uh, C.S. Lewis imagines a fictional scenario. He imagines a master demon named Screwtape uh, writing letters to a junior demon named Wormwood. And what he's doing is he's basically coaching Wormwood, who is his nephew actually, he's coaching Wormwood on how to ensnare and tempt and mislead and ruin his patient, which is uh, a, a Christian. So Wormwood is involved in seeking to, he's assigned to a patient, a client, he's to ruin the faith of this Christian, and, and, and Screwtape is instructing him and coaching him on how to do that well. And if you read that book, it's very short, very thought-provoking. Again, it's, it's fictional. C.S. Lewis is not saying this is exactly how it goes or anything like that. But one of the things Lewis points out is that it would make sense for demons to have as part of their arsenal strategies uh, the idea of seeking to make men and women into materialists and to actually persuade them that demons don't really exist. Now, that's actually one of their best strategies. So Uncle Screwtape in one of his letters writes this to Wormwood. He says, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, 
suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. What's the the strategy there? He's saying try to trivialize in his mind the idea of demonic activity. Let's make them altogether too sophisticated to dwell on satanic activity, and let's make them feel childish and a little embarrassed even to speak about Satan, let alone pray out loud to God to protect us against Satan. I just appeal to your, your mind, your conscience, brothers and sisters, wouldn't Satan love to diminish in your mind any sense of his own reality? Wouldn't that be a brilliant scheme to get you to think as little about him as possible? And no doubt this is one of the great feats Satan has accomplished in our day. Ignorance of the reality and work of the devil will only make us more vulnerable to him. I urge you, brothers and sisters, along with Peter, to wake up and to see that there is a devil. His name is Satan, and he is vicious. And more than that, he has designs on you and on your faith. He is alive. He has a will. He has power. He is acting, and he is doing. The devil is real. His opposition toward the people of God is real, and the situation is serious and earnest. But there's a second thing we should note here in verse 8 about satanic opposition. Here in our text, notice, secondly, the devil is called the believer's adversary, or it could be translated opponent. All those who are born again and are in Christ are drafted into a type of warfare and conflict with the devil. His eyes in a special way on believers. He wants to ruin them. He wants to devour them. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to catch them off guard and to attack them. He is compared to a lion that's on the prowl, a lion that is hunting for its prey and wants to tear its prey to shreds. You Christian have an adversary. You have a great enemy. There exists one right now not visible to your eyes, that if he could have his way would ruin you and sink you lower than hell itself. He watches you. He studies you. He knows your name. It's not too much speculation to imagine that the demons do communicate and have planning sessions, strategy sessions for how to bring you to ruin and how to cause you to fall and bring reproach on the name of Christ. Satan opposes you. He is your accuser. He is your adversary. You may think you have all kinds of enemies or other types of enemies. There is not one like this. Christian, Satan is your chief opponent. He is the great adversary, the great enemy of your soul. And friend, Satan is not a gentleman. He doesn't abide by any Geneva Convention or any war codes. He is a savage. He is a liar. He's a murderer. He is ruthless. He is cunning, and he is our adversary. The picture that Peter is painting is one in which Satan is seen as a lion on the prowl. What does that make us? That makes us the prey. He's the lion. He's on the prowl. He's seeking someone to devour. That's you and me. Well, that's our first point, the reality of satanic opposition. Consider with me now, secondly, the call to Christian alertness and resistance. The call to Christian alertness and resistance. Verse 8 begins with these words, be sober-minded. 
be watchful. Verse 9 says, resist him, firm in your faith. What is to be our reaction as the Lord's people to the reality that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? Well, notwithstanding all that I've just said, we're not to be afraid. So all that shared in verse 8 about Satan being on the prowl and like a lion that wants to tear its prey to shreds is not to induce fear in us. We're not to panic. We're not to be thrown back into endless cycles of fear and anxiety. After all, Peter just told us in verse 7, right, those of you that were here with us last week, cast all, all your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. We're not to be anxious. Peter is not here turning right around to tell us, and here's something you really need to be very anxious about. No, it's not to be afraid, not to be anxious as we think about the prowling lion. But what are we to do? What is to be our reaction? How are we to respond to the reality of the satanic threat? According to Peter, there are a few responses that should be provoked in us when we consider our adversary, the devil. First of all, Peter says, be sober-minded. That's the first admonition, the first imperative. Be sober-minded, Christian. Just a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we were in 1 Peter chapter 4, and in verse 7, we considered this passage, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be sober-minded and self-controlled. And I spoke at length in that sermon about what it means to be sober-minded. I'm not going to go into all that material again, but I'll summarize what was shared there. To be sober-minded is, in essence, to see reality clearly. The word can literally mean don't be drunk, but obviously that is not to see the world like a drunk person, to see the world clearly as it is, to be circumspect, to be possessed with wisdom and sanctified composure in light of what is true. It is to have sound judgment, to be wise, to be self-controlled in one's thoughts and attitudes and actions. The sober-minded man or woman sees reality clearly as God would have us see it and lives in the light of what's true. So to be sober-minded with respect to Satan's activities is to have a proper understanding of who he is and the threat he poses to the people of God. The sober-minded person doesn't underestimate Satan. He is serious in his thoughts about demonic activity. What does it mean to be sober-minded with respect to Satan? It is to be very serious, very serious, very sobered about who he is and what his designs are revealed to be in the Word of God. The end of all things is at hand, brothers and sisters. Satan is on the prowl. Be very serious. Be very sober-minded. Don't be flippant. Don't be foolish, and don't be naive. Be sober-minded. But a second admonition we're given. What reaction to the reality of satanic opposition provoke in us? We should be sober-minded. Secondly, Peter says, be watchful. Could be translated, be on alert. That's actually probably too soft an idea. Be on high alert. You're aware, you're watchful, you're vigilant. Be on alert. This was the Lord's word to Peter and the other disciples on the night when he was betrayed. What did Jesus tell his disciples? It's remarkable, just after telling Peter that Satan has asked for you, that he might sift you as weed, and that you're going to deny me three times, he tells his disciples while they're in the garden, watch and pray. If ever those men should have been serious, and if ever they should have been vigilant, it should have been them, but 
what happens? They're falling asleep. They're not alert and thus become vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. Peter is telling us Christians are to be ever conscious of Satan's reality and his designs. Peter is saying, don't lose focus. Satan is looking for opportunities to attack you. He wants to ruin you. He wants you to fall. He's like a lion prowling around. He's on the hunt, and his desire is to devour you. Therefore, be watchful and be alert. Don't fall asleep. Be ever vigilant to the activity of your adversary. One of the things that lions do when they hunt their prey is they stalk them. They stalk them. You kids, you ever seen a lion ever learned about lions when they're trying to find their prey? It's said that lions will wait sometimes for days at a time, just following their prey from a distance, just keeping an eye on their prey. They'll just watch them. They'll wait until cover of night at times when their target is tired and is no longer alert, and then they strike. Well, so it is with Satan. He prowls, he stalks, he lies in wait, he studies you, he's looking for his moment, his advantage, and then he strikes when defenses are down. Brothers and sisters, Satan loves to strike when you're tired, when defenses are worn down, when you're irritable, when you're least alert to what it is that he is doing in your life and in the world. He looks to attack when we're no longer vigilant, when we're no longer watchful. So Peter says, be watchful. Be always on high alert. Be vigilant against the attacks of Satan. Well, how do we do that? Do I just think about Satan a lot? Do I just stay awake and keep my eyes open? What do, what do I do if I want to be watchful against Satan's attacks? Well, there's a few things I think we could say. One of the ways we stay on high alert, one of the ways we remain watchful against Satan is we pray every day as the Lord instructed us to pray. Jesus told his disciples to pray every day this petition, Father, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord's prayer is meant to be a daily prayer. We know that because in the prayer, one of the petitions is give us this day our daily bread, right? It's a very short prayer, the Lord's prayer. You can say it every morning when you wake up. You can say it before bed at night. And it summarizes what are to be some of the major concerns of the people of God. There are only a few things, I think, that should enter into our minds every day. Like a day should not go by without thinking of the glory of God. A day should not go by without thinking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things the Lord Jesus isolates as something we should think about every day is the activity of Satan and the reality of temptation. Literally, every day we should think, Satan is on the prowl. Temptation is real. I'm a fallen sinner. I'm still vulnerable. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's one of the ways we stay vigilant and watchful against Satan's attack. Another way we do this is by endeavoring to keep ourselves always in a bright and vibrant spiritual state. We do this by reading God's Word daily. Of all the appointments you have, do not miss time with God in His Word. If the choice is between breakfast and the Bible, you choose the Bible and forgo breakfast that day. We should be always in God's Word regularly, daily. We should pray without ceasing. 
We should be active members in the life of the church. We should surround ourselves with robust Christian fellowship. We should give ourselves fully to corporate worship week by week. These things help us to maintain our spiritual alertness. We have a spiritual life, and we want always to keep the garden of our faith in full bloom. How do we do it? We pursue the means of grace. We read the Bible. We pray to God. We pursue Christian fellowship. We throw ourselves into the life of the church. We make the most of these worship gatherings. And all these things, we're keeping ourselves alert spiritually to the attacks of Satan. But there's another way we can be watchful against Satan, the third way, and I'm not really sure the best language to use here. But I mean simply to say that we should be thoughtful about Satan's schemes. We should just think a lot about him and, and what he's doing and what kind of advantage or opportunity he's trying to take in a particular situation. When we find ourselves in certain situations in life, especially trying situations, find ourselves in particular circumstances, we should ask, now if Satan had his way, what would he want here? Husbands and wives should talk that way with each other. Here's this issue. Maybe it's a problem in the marriage. Maybe it's a problem with one of the kids. Maybe it's some kind of threat or health crisis or financial problem. Now, if Satan had his way, how would he seek to guide us into error and into temptation? If Satan could have his full advantage, how would he seek to harm us and molest us and ruin us? We should think that way about Satan. We should think that way as a church. Things happen, things emerge. What is Satan's angle here? What is he trying to do? If he could have his way, what would it be? We may not always be able to ascertain an answer to that question, but sometimes we might get the better of him. We might get the advantage of him. We might anticipate his movements and be able to act accordingly. Many of you would have been alive, I think it's in the 70s when this fad went on, the WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? Well, I'm not suggesting you wear a WWSD bracelet, but what I'm saying is it wouldn't be inappropriate to have some way to regularly bring to our minds Satan's at work. Satan's trying to do something in my life. You know, some pastors will say, you know, God is for you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, I can tell you Satan is not for you and he has terrible plans for your life. He wants to ruin you and you should think about that. We should be watchful against that. We should be thoughtful. What is Satan doing? What is he trying to bring about in my life? This situation, that situation, this relationship, if he could have his way, how would this go? We should be watchful. But we're called to more than being sober-minded and serious, called to more than being watchful and being on high alert. There's a third imperative, a third ad admonishment we're given. It's in verse 3. Resist him firm in your faith. Resist him Firm in your faith. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Resist him firm in your faith. This resistance is active. The word there is an active imperative verb. It involves engagement on our parts. This isn't passive. It's active resistance. We make deliberate choices. We take deliberate actions to resist the attacks of Satan. What do we do about the prowling lion who seeks to devour us? Well, don't misunderstand Peter. He doesn't say we're to cower in fear. We're not to ball up in the fetal position and suck our thumbs. We're not to hide out until Jesus comes back. No, Peter says resist him. Satan's on the prowl. He's after you. Resist him. Oppose him. 
Stand up to him, firm in your faith. Don't let your knees buckle. Don't cower away. Stand up straight. Put your faith in God and resist him. This is a call to perseverance through satanic opposition. It's a call to faith-filled courage to withstand our adversary, the devil. Not a kind of courage born of naivety or self-reliance or pride or foolhardiness. This is courage and steadfastness born of a serious faith in God and a confidence that He will supply grace and help for the fight. We learn here, don't we, in verse 9, that what is needed for the fight against Satan, for resistance against satanic attack, is faith. Resist him, Peter says, firm in your faith. We resist Satan through strong faith in God. Faith that is not just believing facts about who Jesus said that he is, rather faith that is a whole-souled attachment and commitment to Jesus Christ. Faith that stakes all that we are on all that he is. Faith that clings to Christ and hopes in him for everlasting life. Faith that loves Jesus and delights in Jesus and is satisfied in Jesus. Such faith is firm. Such faith will not be moved but will stand firm against the attack. Faith that believes that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Faith that believes that he who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, 1 John 4.4. Faith that believes that God will soon crush Satan under your feet, Romans 16.20. Faith that knows that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us, James 4 and verse 6. Brothers and sisters, Satan's target, he could have his way. I mean, he relishes suffering. He'd love to harm you physically. He'd love to lead you into all kinds of immorality. He'd love to hurt you physically. But the target for Satan ultimately is your faith. He knows that God's people are prepared to endure physical suffering for Jesus' sake. His target, what he's after, is to make your faith fail. What did Jesus pray for Peter in the garden? He says, I've prayed for your faith that it may not fail. How do we stand against Satan and resist the prowling lion? We do it through faith in God. As he seeks to come at us with fiery darts of temptation and lust and the pleasures of the world and the passions of the flesh, we fill ourselves up by faith with Jesus. We take the cup of living water to our mouths by faith. We take a morsel of the bread of life, and through faith in him, we overcome the attacks of the evil one. We overcome the oppression of our adversary by flying to Jesus and finding grace to help in time of need. We resist Satan by strong and robust and firm faith in God. Our first point was the reality of satanic opposition. The second was the call to Christian alertness and resistance. Thirdly and finally, we have an encouragement for the fight. An encouragement for the fight. Look again, if you would, at verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
We're to resist, it's the imperative, knowing. Knowing, knowing what? That our brothers and sisters throughout the world are subject to the same kind of attacks of the evil one. I think Peter's basic point is to say we're not alone in the fight. He's saying brothers and sisters throughout time, throughout the world has suffered the same attacks. You're not some kind of freak. You're not some kind of object of special attack. All of God's people around the world throughout the ages have suffered in this way at the hands of Satan. Christian, you're not alone. Christians all over the world, you're to know, are suffering the same kinds of things throughout the world. And they, like us, are seeking to persevere by faith. And this, I think Peter means to give to us as a word of comfort. I think it's one of the greatest things about studying Christian history. In church history, you have the annals of people who have persevered to the end. People who have stood firm in their faith and they made it to the end of the race, complete in Christ. And that's to give us comfort because we're made of the same stuff that they're made of. They were not super Christians, they were not superheroes, but they are testaments to the faithfulness of God to preserve his people and to bring them to the end of their race, firm in their faith and steadfast trust in God. But it's not just those who have died and that their faith has persevered. It's also those who are alive. Brothers and sisters, all over the world, there are people just like you who have endured the attacks of Satan. They stand with you. You have a certain solidarity with them. You're not alone in the fight. There's brothers and sisters here in this room, and there's brothers and sisters on every continent of the globe who are fighting against Satan. They're in this war with you. You're not alone. You're not the unique target of satanic attack. Rather, all of God's people have suffered things that Satan's hands will continue to do so, and we have one another in the fight. That sense of solidarity, of Christian fellowship, of standing together with the company of the elect, the saints of God, is meant to encourage us as we stand against Satan. It's said that lions, when they have their way, will seek to corner and isolate their prey. Very rare that a lion will plunge into the center of a herd. But rather what they do is they stalk and they wait and they pick off the weakling that strayed away from the herd. Or they see this one that's gone a little too far to gather some water and then they have their prey cornered. Now I don't know if I'm reading too much into the analogy. I don't know if Peter means to say this, but it's just simply true. Satan does his best work in our lives when we are in isolation, when we're isolated from the people of God. And I think that comes from two angles. First of all, I think literally, physically, relationally, one of Satan's goals, one of his designs is to isolate particular sheep in this flock from the rest of the body. The lion can easily pick off the straying sheep when he or she is not among the rest of the flock. Brother, sister, I, I do mean to say this, that if you want to successfully resist the attacks of Satan, there is a solidarity and a strength in numbers we're meant to have in the church. Stay with the herd. Stay with the flock. I literally mean this. Come to church. Just, just don't isolate yourself from the people of God. Come to Bible study. Come to small group. 
Be among the Lord's people. There is a solidarity and a strength and an encouragement and a comfort that comes from being among those who, like us, are arrayed against our foe, our adversary, the devil. We say to him, if you're going to pick off one of us, you're going to have to take all of us. We are reinforcing one another, encouraging one another, seeking to strengthen one another for the fight. Satan loves to isolate believers. And who knows what he was able to accomplish in this last year and a half around the world as believers were isolated from one another. How how many of the sheep fell prey to his attacks while they were in isolation from the rest of the flock? What I'm saying is there's a solidarity and a strength and a comfort and encouragement that comes from our standing with the people of God, our assembling with the people of God. But there's a second way I think Satan works in terms of trying to isolate his prey. And that is to try to cause the people of God, the children of God, though they may be among the assembly of the Lord's people, though they may be involved in ministries and in Christian fellowship and in small groups and other things, though they are not physically isolated, he tries to make them feel isolated. He wants to make you feel alone. Surely I'm the only one who struggles with this. Surely, surely if, if they knew what was going on in here, I I can never come back to this church. Everyone looks so clean, so well-to-do, so fine when we come to church. Oh, but if they could see my life, if they could see me on Monday. Satan wants us to feel isolated from one another. He wants us to feel lonely, and he wants to torture us in isolation. This is just a small example uh, last week, I preached on the theme of anxiety. That comes up sometimes in the Bible. It's not come up to a great degree in any of the books that I've preached so far, but I preach on anxiety. I think I had more people come to me after that sermon than any other sermon I've preached. And there were at least a few who believed they were the only ones struggling intensely with anxiety. And I just opened this up to our small group the other night. What we did for small group was very simple. We just Went around the room and said, everybody, tell me something you're anxious about and let's cast our anxieties on the Lord together. What is it that Satan's trying to do in those people who feel isolated? You're some kind of spiritual aberration, some kind of spiritual freak. Don't you bring this up in the small group. Don't you bring this up to the pastor. You keep this to yourself. This happens all the time with brothers and sisters who struggle with pornography It happens with marriages that they think, well, if it was known that we were something less than what we are in appearance on Sunday mornings, well, we would be in the pastor's office and we'd be put out of the church. Satan loves to make us feel alone. He wants to isolate us. He doesn't want us to have the mindset of this passage that knows God's people around the world are suffering just like I am. We're all in this sinful mess together. We're all the objects of satanic attack, and his advantage in my life may not be the same as the advantage he has in my brother or sister's life, but he's active in trying to make all of us fall, and he doesn't want us to voice that or to know that. Brother, sister, what I'm trying to say is there is a strength and a solidarity to be found in a church that bears one another's burdens and together fights Satan. And I really do believe this is at the heart of Peter's encouragement. You're not alone, Christians. 
You small, fledgling Christian group in Bithynia, you may think you're the only church out there. There are churches all over the world and God is doing a work and you are not the special object of Satan's attack. You're just like your brothers and sisters and we stand together. You Christian sitting among the hundred or so people here and you think you're the only one who struggles with sin and you're the only one who's fallen prey to Satan's attacks, you're not alone. Know that your brothers and sisters here and around the world have suffered just as you have. And draw all the comfort and strength that is meant to be found in a community that together resists the devil. We're to be watchful, we're to be sober-minded, we're to resist him firm in our faith, knowing, knowing that we're not alone. There's one more thing I wish to say, and then I'll be done. And it's not here in the text itself, but it needs to be said. I said that Satan knows your name. Satan stalks you. Satan watches you. He's looking right now, right now, for his advantage. He's, he's already making plans about the week to come. He knows you and he studies you. But there is another who knows your name, who watches you, who loves you, who cares for you, and who prays for you. His name is Jesus, and he is our great high priest. And he says prayers for you, Christian, just like the ones he said for Peter. Satan has gone to Jesus for you. And Jesus has prayed for you by name, that your faith may not fail. The word of comfort is this, brothers and sisters, Jesus will give you grace to help in time of need. He will keep you. He will pray for you. And he will see to it that your faith does not fail. And the promise is this, that even when you do fall, as Peter did, he'll restore you. He'll pick you back up. What was going on in Peter's mind after he fell? After he denied the Lord. Isn't it amazing Peter was with the Lord all these years. He wasn't there at the cross. None of the disciples were saved John. Where was Peter? Well, he was suffering some long, dark night of the soul in some closet somewhere, enduring the attacks of Satan. What did he think would be his from the Lord? When he was risen again, Peter sees the empty tomb, he knows that the Lord is risen. What's going through Peter's mind? What did he think he would receive from his master? What did Jesus do for Peter? He sweetly restored him. Do you love me, Peter? Follow me again. Feed my sheep. Strengthen your brothers. It's okay, Peter. It's okay. I've prayed for you. Your faith isn't going to fail. You're going to persevere. You're going to be kept. He prays that way for each one of us. And we should draw all the comfort and encouragement that's meant to have for us in our struggles and our fight against Satan. We're not to be afraid. He who is within you and he who prays for you is greater than he that is in the world. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we know that every day, every moment, we depend on your grace. Every hour we need you. We know that if we were in a moment without your sovereign care, without the Lord Jesus' prayers for us, without your gracious providence in our lives and your grace to sustain us. If we were without those things but for a moment, we would fall and we would fail and we would be ruined everlastingly. We thank you for the initiatives of your spirit that have kept us in the faith. We pray that through the grace that you supply, we would give ourselves to this fight against our adversary. Please help your struggling people here Please help us. Please lift up our heads. Please fill us with grace to be watchful, to be vigilant, to be on high alert, and to resist our adversary, the devil. We pray that you would cause each one of us, that you would work in us the habit of daily coming to you in prayer and bringing to you the concerns of your kingdom and reflecting an awareness of Satan's work in the world, and that we would weekly, daily, Be mindful of what our adversary is doing. May you help us in this. We pray that you would protect all of your people here, that none of us would fall and none of us would fail. But we pray, Father, that when we do fall, when we do stumble, as Peter did, we depend only on your grace, the grace that you showed to Peter. Please restore us. Maybe even now there are some who need to be restored. Convince them of your gospel and convince them of your grace. Please strengthen the feeble knees. Lift the drooping arms. Help your people to stand firm in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.